Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Good morning. In Genesis 19, God sent two angels to the city of Sodom to destroy it. It was a very wicked place. Abraham had pled with God to preserve it. He sent two angels to destroy it. Lot, his nephew, lived there. And the angels went into Lot's home. And the men of the city were so wicked that they were, they were uh, pleading with Lot to have these two men come out and have sex with them. And it was a crazy scene. And the angels, the two angels, pulled Lot back into safety and preserved his family before they would destroy the city of Sodom. Those were angels. In Second Chronicles 32, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, brought a huge army up to siege the city of Jerusalem. But God sent an angel, and the angel defeated 180,000 troops dead. After Mary gave birth to Jesus, it was an angel that appeared to Joseph and said, don't go back (laughs) that way. And they fled into Egypt because of the danger of Herod. There was another Herod, a later Herod in the Herodian family. We read about in the book of Acts. And he had uh, beheaded James and Peter was in jail and Peter was next. But God sent an angel to that prison. Kind of had to poke Peter on the side, wake him up and rescue him. Angels are very powerful, and they were very prominent in Bible times, which makes sense for us as we come to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, why the writer of Hebrews would say, speaking of Jesus, so he became as much superior to the angel as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, since this Verse starts with the word so. We need to ask, what is it looking back to? Well, it's looking back to the first couple of verses of Hebrews. We started a brand new series last Sunday through the New Testament epistle of Hebrews, which will take us through about Christmas time, it looks like. And in Hebrews 1, specifically verse 2 and 3, it made these great statements about who Jesus is and was. Heir of all things, created the universe, reflects the glory of God, bears the stamp of God's nature, sustains the universe, provided purification for sins, and now is seated at God's right hand. That's who Jesus is. That is what he has done and what he is doing. And on the heels of that, the writer says this. So, he became 
as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did, did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those Who will inherit salvation? Now, before we work through this passage this morning, I want to ask a couple of very important questions to set the stage for us to be able to understand it and to apply it. And the first question is this, why does the writer compare with Jesus with angels? I'm guessing that most of you, like myself, have never struggled with that issue. You've never thought, well, are the angels higher than Jesus? You've just been taught and understood from Scripture that, oh, of course, Jesus and angels are in two different categories. But obviously, in this passage, it's important for the writer to make that comparison, and we need to ask the question, why? And let me give you at least three reasons why he makes this comparison. And the first is the Jewish respect for angels. He's writing to Jewish Christians, Jewish people who have become followers of Jesus Christ and are tempted to turn back and turn away and apostatize. In the first century, in that Jewish context, angels were viewed as powerful beings and they were gods, they were intermediaries between God and humans. So that was the the air they breathed. That was what they held to. And it was also often believed that angels were to be feared and angels were to be placated. So naturally for this writer to take this group of people or not people, this group of beings, angels that were so highly exalted and venerated and then to compare Jesus to them in his superiority It made Jesus' worth become even more clear to them. Secondly, some people even worshipped angels at that time. We know that from Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. 
And there was also a false view, Gnosticism, that held that material was evil. What was truly spiritual was spirit. And so, in line with that, angels were spiritual beings. They didn't have a material body. But Jesus had a material body. And therefore, some in this false view believed that Jesus was inferior to the angels. And so this was a, a belief that he had, to, he had to address. And then maybe the most immediate textual and contextual reason is because of the argument that's going to come next Sunday in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I don't want to steal Corey's thunder. Pastor Corey's preaching next week those verses But basically, the argument in Hebrews 2 is that the Old Testament law was mediated by angels, and you've had great respect for it, and rightly so. But if, there's an if then, if you had such respect for that word of God, and now there is someone who is far superior to those angels that mediated that law, how much more respect should you have for his word? And so that's what's happening contextually and what we're going to get to, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, at our, in our society, at any given point, we may or may not have the same veneration for angels that they had, but we can and must understand the incredible importance of the revelation that comes to us through the Son of God as compared to a former type. So, That's why the writer compares Jesus with angel. The second question is this, and this gets into application. This gets into how does this help us today? We want to ask the question, what in our society functions like angelic beings and and claims deification, claims to be God, claims to be divine? What type of beings, what type of systems, what type of worldviews function like angels did for them? I I think that's an incredibly important question for us to ask, to apply it. And we will get to that in a few minutes. But let's watch the case that this writer makes about how Jesus is superior to over angels. This is on your outline sheet. First of all, he has a better name, verses 4 and 5. Again, speaking of Jesus, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to their. Now, in the next few verses, between verses 5 and 13, there are seven Quotations from the Old Testament. It's very common for New Testament writers to quote the Old Testament. But before we work through the passage, I think it's important for us to understand how New Testament writers in general, and the writer to Hebrews specifically, quotes the Old Testament. And, and, and let's make a couple of introductory comments. We'll talk about this, Lord willing, All through this series because we're going to see it a lot. But from the get-go, let's make a couple of comments clear. First of all, what was written in the Old Testament was God's word. It was from God. And when we now 
look back at the Old Testament, the first and thing we want to do is study it, understand it in its context, and understand what it meant to the people to whom uh, it was written. We should always look for that. But all of the Old Testament, in one way or another, is incomplete. It's all pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment that's going to come in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 1.1 basically said. You know, in the past, God revealed himself through the prophets in many times, in many ways. But now in these last days, he's revealed himself by his son. And so we always want to ask, how is this pointing forward? How does it? And therefore, for that reason, the New Testament writers had this foundation that they knew that all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to its ultimate fulfillment and the Messiah. And therefore, they could and did take some Old Testament passages and find some things in there that you and I probably wouldn't find. But they did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they had the right to do that. This wasn't random interpretation. This is not allegory. This isn't like they're importing things from outside the text that have nothing at all to do with the text. This is from the theological foundation and understanding that they had that all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. And so we always have to understand that. So when they will quote an Old Testament passage, and often they'll just quote one verse, but they're referring to the whole passage. When they quote those passages, they are being led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and nobody today has that same authority. So be careful if you hear any teacher Or any Christian saying, oh, you know, I got this new meaning out of this passage. Nobody in the whole history of the church has ever had it. But there's this new, deeper, fuller meaning. Well, be careful about that. Because in the Old Testament, there is a deeper, fuller meaning that was there. It was all pointing to Jesus. And often, the Old Testament writers wrote better than they knew. There was no way they could fully understand everything about Jesus. But they wrote under God's inspiration. And now the New Testament writers come and they they pick it up. Does that make sense? I think that that's just, again, a very basic statement. But it's important for us as we start walking through this. Now, let's go to verse 5. And we'll start into the first of, of these quotes. Now, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father's. I've become your father. Angels are called sons of God collectively in several places in the Old Testament, but never is one individual angel called a son of God, unlike Jesus. This verse is quoting Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. Where the psalmist said, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will, get, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of earth your possession. So historically, this is speaking, this was speaking of Jewish human kings. 
It was read every time a new king would come to the throne in Israel, they would read this passage. And it speaks of the confidence that the Lord had on that anointed king and in the face of his enemies. And yet it was always going to be fully realized by the son of God who would be a king. So historically, Jewish kings, human kings, but prophetically, this is looking forward to Jesus as a divine king. Notice how it said that you'll rule the earth with a rod of iron. No, no Israelite king ruled the whole earth. They ruled in Israel. They ruled only Israel, but the New Testament applies it here and in Acts chapter 13. And there's a specific emphasis on the word today. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. Now, what day is being talked about? We're going to look at Acts chapter 13, where this is quoted. In Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul was preaching in Antioch about God's work in history and how he had worked through the Exodus, through the judges, through the kings, and through the promise of sending a savior. And ultimately he said this, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. Their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm You are my son, today I have become your father. What was the day? The day was the day of the resurrection. Now, Jesus was eternally the son of God. We know that. This is referring to the time in which he entered fully into all the prerogatives of that relationship. And we know this isn't just... This isn't just the writer of Hebrews. Uh, Romans, for instance, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 3, says that he was appointed son of God in power through the resurrection from the dead. So we know that this day prophesied in Psalm 2, it was originally speaking of human kings, but now there was going to be a greater king that would be the son of God and he would rise from the dead. Back in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, or again, here's the second quote. I will be his father and he will be my son. This is looking back to Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, God is responding to David's desire to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build the Lord a permanent house. Basically, uh, God said to Nathan that he did not want just a house of cedar, but he wanted to establish David's house forever. And David was a man of war, so David was not going to be able to build the temple. Beginning in verse 12, he prophesied about David's successor and David's son who would build this house and then that throne would last forever. So historically, this is talking about King Solomon. But prophetically, it's talking about King Jesus. Luke chapter 1. When these words were given to Mary... You will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and you are to call him Jesus, he will be great and he will be the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. See how the Old Testament and the New Testament are unified and pointing to the same thing. Jesus has a better name than the angels and the name is son. That's the name. It's not about his earthly name, Jesus. It's son. Jesus is the only being in the universe whom God the Father calls son. Secondly, he is worshipped. Jesus is worshipped. The son is worshipped. Verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, you and I, when we use the term firstborn, we tend to speak of it as not just tend to speak, I guess we always speak of the very first child born into a family. And the, the original Greek word can mean that, but it also can speak of authority and preeminence and status that someone has, like in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, where Jesus is the firstborn called the preeminent over all creation. And this is similar to Psalm 97, verse 7. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. And the Septuagint, which I'll mention what that is in a minute, if that's a new term for you, says, worship him, all his angels. So I need to do one more little qualifying thing about how these Old Testament and New Testament get quoted with each other. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. That was the original writing. Almost all of the Old Testament's Hebrew. There's a few chapters in Aramaic, which is a very similar language, but almost basically the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. After that, there became another translation directly from the Hebrew into Greek, and it was called the Septuagint. It's often um, abbreviated as LXX, uh, 70, because of the 70 scholars involved. So you've got the Hebrew Old Testament, and then you've got a Greek translation of it called the Septuagint. Now you've got the New Testament is written in Greek. So if you're a New Testament writer, you're writing in Greek, but if you're going to quote the Old Testament, here's what happens. Sometimes you quote the Hebrew kind of word for word or as close to word for word as you can get between the two languages. But sometimes, which often happens in Hebrews, rather than quoting the Hebrew, it will quote the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And that's why sometimes, like, if you look at it in English, you go, wait a minute, these are slightly different words. I'm not sure I understand. That is what is happening here in Psalm 97.7. The the Hebrew Old Testament says, uh, worship him, all you gods. And the Septuagint came along and translated that as angels. And now this writer of Hebrews, in looking back to Jesus' rule and his being worshipped, quotes that version of it. He who is worshipped must be greater 
than those who worship him. So historically, Psalm 97 is speaking of Yahweh. That's God in the Old Testament. That was the name for God in the Old Testament. One of the, the primary name for God, many names for God, but primary name was Yahweh. That's who this was speaking of. But again, prophetically, it's speaking of Jesus who is going to come. Number three, third reason why Jesus is superior to the angels is because they serve, but he rules. <laughs> They're on this side. He is up here on this side. Verse seven, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Now, God used the elements as his servants and his messengers. Numbers 11, he used the wind. Genesis 19, he used the fire. And the angels were behind those things. Psalm 104 says this. He makes winds his messengers. Flames of fire, his servants, or again in the Septuagint, his angels. So the writer of Hebrews knows that that's there. And quotes this, Psalm 104 is speaking of God using literal wind and literal fire as messengers. In the Septuagint, it's the angels who are the messengers, or who are these elements. So now we come to the book of Hebrews, and the writer uses the language and thoughts of the passage to show that Christ uses angels in the same way. The same way that God the Father used the literal elements, Christ the Son uses angels in the same way. Verse 8. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This comes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, historically... Psalm 45 was uh, often used at, at a, a marriage celebration. The king of Israel, when the king of Israel would be uh, attaining a wife, there would be this celebration and these would be the things that would be said. This psalm would be read. The quotation contains a royal person with, with his servant companions. The king is addressed as a god. He has a throne. He has a scepter. He has a kingdom. He loves righteousness. He has a special anointing on him. But all of that is looking forward prophetically to the day when Jesus is king. So the argument runs like this. Historically, God has chosen this righteous man to be the king instead of his companions. Prophetically, God has chosen Christ to rule rather than the angels. Number four, he is eternal. Verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment 
You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. I didn't uh, reproduce Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27, which this is quoting because it is the exact same words. So that's where this comes from, Psalm 102. In Psalm 102, the psalmist is complaining to God about how short life is. And the psalmist is contrasting how short our life is with God's eternality. And so historically, Psalm 102, this one who laid the foundation of the earth is Yahweh. But prophetically, it's Jesus. What's the justification for that? The writer of Hebrews has already told us in chapter 1, verse 2, that the world was created through the agency of the Son. And now he is expanding on that by not only talking about his role in creation, but his eternality. Think about this. The author of Hebrews has God saying this to someone. (laughs) Who is it in the universe to whom God would say, Lord. <laughs> Who will God the Father call Lord? There is only one. Now think about this. God the Father calls Jesus God and he calls him Lord. That is awesome. <laughs> it shows us who Jesus really is. Well, the last two quotations, um, um, Show that now we come to Jesus being enthroned in verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is actually the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, if you're living in Old Testament times and you come to Psalm 110, you say, when is this psalm going to be spoken? When is it going to be used? How is it going to be used? Historically, it's when the human king is being enthroned. And we're going to talk about the victory that he's going to have over enemies. God is going to say to him, you will sit with me and you will rule with me. But prophetically, it's the enthronement and victory of Jesus, the Messiah. Over and over again, New Testament writers use Psalm 110 about Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as victorious, Jesus as ruling. Acts chapter 2, when on the day of Pentecost, when the message of the gospel was being preached, These words were used by Peter. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For God did not send to, or David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Psalm 110, verse 1. And he concludes 
in verse 14 by saying, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? No angels sit at God's right hand. They stand waiting to serve. They serve believers in Jesus Christ, those who will inherit salvation. So here's God's word for us this morning. God is saying some things about Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 1. And what God says about Jesus shows who he is and how to respond to him. What does God say about Jesus? Well, he has a better name than the angels. He's worshipped by the angels. He rules and the angels only serve. He is eternal, not created like the angels. He is enthroned on God's right hand. Those are the things he says about Jesus. And now let's come back as we start to apply this and wrap it up. And let's ask this question. What in our society functions like angelic beings and claims deification? Because Again, there aren't many people that are going around saying, well, you know, the angels are better than Jesus. But so we've looked at the text and we've looked at what it meant to them. And let's ask, what's similar to it in our society? Let me let me throw out a few things as we start to wrap it up. First of all, the New Age movement. New Age movement calls fallen angels avatars or spirit guides. And people practice channeling supposedly to awaken hidden powers within people which can help them fulfill their potential. Uh, Some people look to things like horoscopes and Ouija boards. Another one is pluralism. D.A. Carson calls pluralism the great god of our society. You know, the false deity pluralism that believes that it it really doesn't matter what God you pray to because they're all expressions of one God. There's they're, they're just one God with different names. So Jesus is just one of many different viable options. And that pluralistic mindset is very, very common in America and becoming more common by the day. Related to that is the God of tolerance. Let me mention one more, self-identity. There's a stream of thought in our culture that transcends normal functions in life. This may seem strange to you, but it has assumed kind of an ultimate value in our culture in the last few years. If you disagree with somebody's stated self-identity, you're viewed as wrong, as hateful, as phobic, even if their identification has no bearing in science, even if it's just mental. So, for instance, let's take transgenderism. Uh, A biological female can say in our society, I identify as a man. And if anybody argues against that, And says, well, you know, that's not the way it really is. That person in our society is castigated as being hateful, as being insensitive. What if somebody says, I identify as a purple pig? It shows the absurdity of that type of argument. There's pressure on us increasingly to normalize This kind of mental construct. 
And it is a mental construct. Let me tell you how ridiculous it is and how dangerous it is, parents in particular. If a 14-year-old girl begins feeling like she is, quote, in the wrong body and that she is really a man, she's not old enough in most states to, to go get a tattoo or to go to a bar and buy a beer or to drive a car. But so-called professionals can counsel her about mutilating her body and having a double mastectomy. That's how sick our society is. Now, let me qualify quickly. I am not speaking in this moment about individual people. As Christians, we love everybody. We're not going to judge anybody individually. We're going to welcome anybody and we're going to be loving towards people, right? That's what Jesus was. I'm talking about the philosophical underpinning that is misleading an entire generation and harming an entire generation. And our children are being harmed more than we could ever imagine by this. And we cannot accept it. It's a mindset. And it started not with transgenderism. I use that just as an example. It started a few years ago that said, basically, my self-identity and my happiness are what's most important in life. I mean, that's been true of America for a long time, right? But now what we're seeing is the effects of when it's gotten ridiculous. Oh, my self-identity is this. If Jesus says one thing, but your personal self-identity leads you in a different direction, who are you going to follow? Who's going to be Lord? Who's going to be superior? Is it going to be self-identity? Is it going to be pluralism? Or is it going to be Jesus, the Son of God? Now, just like the writer of Hebrews stressed to his audience in the first century that Jesus was superior to the angels that they venerated, God tells us today that Jesus is superior to everything in our society, to every view, to every mindset, to every religion. He is superior. So whatever it is that you worship, if it's pluralism, if it's tolerance, if it's self-identity, or if it's a multitude of other things that I didn't mention, but you might think of, let's bow before Jesus, right? Well, after four years of labor, Michelangelo finished painting the Sistine Chapel in 1512. Back in that day, the, the only power source, the, the, they didn't have electric lights, so they burned candles. And so day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, the candles burned in there. And what happened is soot rose to the ceiling. So after more than 400 years of soot, and grime and dust, those beautiful frescoes had looked different. So in 1984, a team of restorative artists went to work on the Sistine Chapel to restore uh, the original painting. They worked from 1984 to 1999 until the monochrome colors were restored to their vitality. 
Now, prior to that restoration, many people in the art community had mixed views on Michelangelo. On the one hand, he was brilliant. His thoughts, his concepts, and they believed in his brilliance, but they they thought his coloration was mundane, was monochrome. And then after, after the restoration came, and now it didn't look monochrome anymore, but you had the brilliant pinks and purples and yellows and blues. They began to understand the true greatness of Michelangelo. And in our culture, there's a lot of soot and views and cloudiness and dustiness. that can cloud our vision of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the beauty of Jesus Christ and the book of Hebrews and specifically Hebrews chapter 1 verses 4 to 14 can help us see who he really is and what God says about Jesus shows us who he is and how we are to respond to him. How will you respond today? I'm going to give you a couple minutes to think that through, to pray that through, but I think it must be at least this. Worship. this one that is so far above the angels and obey what he says to you today. Worship starts by recognizing some of you might not even be a follower of Jesus yet. Worship starts by surrendering yourself to him by saying, I believe in you. I'm separated from you, but I'm thankful for what you did for me on the cross. And I put my faith in you today to be your follower we bow your heads and just just ask the Lord how do I respond in worship how do I respond in obedience to this great Jesus thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church this podcast is also available on our website harvestcharlotte.com Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.